Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Okay, so I'm here today with uh, Blythe Masters, the CEO and founder of Digital Asset Holdings, and of course, with a storied career in our own right. Blythe, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you on Fintech Insider. Thanks for having me, Simon. Alrighty, um, I guess for our audience, um, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your career, your background, how you found yourself getting into what it is you do now. Absolutely. I spent 27 years in the financial services industry, uh, all of that time working for JP Morgan. Did a number of roles uh, that ranged from uh, a variety of businesses in uh, the market space, uh, including most recently running the global commodities business. Uh, prior to that, uh, in an earlier iteration, working in uh, structured credit uh, and fixed income markets broadly. Also worked in risk, uh, ran global credit portfolio and credit policy and strategy, and uh, did a stint as the CFO of uh, JP Morgan's global investment bank. Finally, I spent a lot of time uh, working on regulatory policy and represented the investment bank in that regard uh, for the last several years that I was at the bank. I left uh, JP Morgan towards the end of 2014 and uh, was planning on taking a whole year off, but didn't make it to a full year of uh, time off because I became interested in uh, this idea of blockchain. And I joined Digital Asset in March of 2015, having experienced something of a uh, aha moment that was uh, really uh, a moment of realization that the underlying technology uh, that had led to uh, and been part of the invention of Bitcoin, as in blockchain technology, had potential applications in the financial services sector that I knew so well uh, that had been thoroughly underexplored and were potentially revolutionary. And that was uh, what led me to uh, make the move into a very small startup, uh, having spent uh, my prior career uh, at a very large firm. That's a pre pretty big shift, right? Um, and a cultural shift, I'm sure. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the major differences. Are, are there any differences between what um, you guys are building and DLT and blockchain as it exists in Bitcoin? Is it the, one the same thing or are there the real differences? Probably the best way uh, to describe the technology that we're working with is that it's blockchain inspired. If you think about the, uh, the, the term uh, distributed ledger technology, it's it's really a it's not a single concept or a single methodology or a single component. It's actually more of a, a bucket or collective term that encapsulates a number of uh, different components. So the use of blockchains, public key infrastructure, uh, cryptographic signing, hash functions, 
modeling and automation of business logic, otherwise sometimes known as smart contracts, consensus algorithms. Uh, there's a whole array of different components. If you uh, think about the solution that Digital Asset uh, is building into its platform, we essentially take aspects of all of, uh, all of those features and customize in order to fit the needs of what are essentially large, uh, global, highly regulated, in some cases, systemically consequential market infrastructure providers and their customers. Uh, and the needs of that uh, customer base are very different than the needs of, say, an individual who was uh, seeking to use the Bitcoin blockchain to transfer uh, tokens of value uh, to another individual over the internet in a secure fashion. So that makes total sense. It, it really does. I think one of the things I often say is uh, if you had nine or 10 Lego bricks and your problem was wanting to move money around the world between one individual and another and not get caught, you've designed something that looked very like very much like Bitcoin. If you are a large financial institution, you've designed something that looked a lot more like uh, digital asset holdings a building or Cordera building and R3 and, and these sorts of things are um, built with that need in mind. That's exactly right. So if you if you think about what are the things that regulated financial firms need to worry about uh, by virtue of the nature of their business and the demands uh, placed upon them by their regulators and, and by the law, uh, they have to comply with KYC, AML, uh, monitoring restrictions. So that means no anonymous activity whatsoever. Standard is you not only know what your customers are doing and why, but uh, more or less that uh, what their customers are doing and why as well. You need a high degree of auditability. You need uh, a governance framework that is predictable uh, and has its foundation in the rule of law and the relevant uh, jurisdiction. You need to be able to reverse transactions in a manner that is controllable and predictable. Uh, you need privacy uh, and confidentiality to be uh, preserved. Uh, you very often have data domicile restrictions, which means you, you simply must not send information to a place uh, that is outside your jurisdiction. You need to have legal certainty. You obviously need to be able to scale the infrastructure to high uh, levels of throughput uh, capacity, uh, given the nature of large uh, capital markets uh, activity, which is uh, very high volume, very high frequency. And last, but most certainly not least, you need uh, standards of resiliency that are uh, essentially second to none. Because, of course, if uh, systemic market infrastructure stops working, there are real implications for the real economy uh, and you get a phone call that is never going to be a, a pleasant experience. So once you lit, rattle off that sort of a list of requirements, uh, you immediately realize that some of the ingenious specifications and design features of the original Bitcoin blockchain simply aren't appropriate uh, for use in, in this context. doesn't make the original invention any less ingenious uh, or fit for its purpose, but it, it means that you need to modify some of those original design features in order to operate in these markets. That makes total sense. I think there is definitely a view that you know there can be only one blockchain to rule them all, but actually it sounds like what you're building is something that suits a specific market need, um, and indeed what a lot of people are building in this market. So on that basis, I mean, what are you guys focused on? What are you building, and you know what problem does it solve? So uh, I mentioned already the the nature of our customers, by and large, large uh, market infrastructure providers and their major customers, who are obviously banks and other financial uh, institutions, uh, investment managers, and the like. I can talk specifically about a couple of examples that are in the public domain, so that makes it easy. 
So uh, one notable uh, one is uh, the work that we're doing in Australia for ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, they operate an integrated uh, exchange clearing settlement uh, and CSD functionality on behalf of the Australian markets. And we have been contracted to uh, work with ASX to develop a DLT-based replacement for the infrastructure uh, that they use today uh, to perform that functionality of clearing and settlement in the CSD, which is known as CHESS. And CHESS is uh, infrastructure that is highly resilient. It works just fine, but it's aging. It's 20 plus years old and it's uh, nearing the end of its uh, economically uh, useful life and will need to be replaced in due course, uh, whether by DLT infrastructure or otherwise. And of course, in that circumstance, the ASX evaluated cutting edge technologies and the project that we're working on, which is now you know, more, in, more than a year into its uh, process, is to position them to make a decision as to be able to implement that technology uh, into production where the decision will get made at the end of this year, 2017, uh, the actual implementation timeline uh, to be determined thereafter. So in this particular case, the application is to cash equities markets. What we're building is a platform that is essentially asset class agnostic or multi-purpose uh, where there is a core component to uh, the digital asset platform, uh, which every use case would commonly leverage, and then specifically designed uh, libraries and applications above that that address the uh, unique needs of the particular market uh, structure, like the Australian cash equities markets in the case of uh, the ASX. So that platform and the application that sits on top of it are both products that are being designed and built for production released by Digital Asset and are well underway. The same platform, different application, uh, is targeted for another uh, project that is, uh, has been like, reasonably uh, broadly advertised in the public domain, which is for uh, DTCC, uh, who are the central securities depository here in the United States. Uh, they also operate FICC, uh, lots of letters here. FICC is the clearing uh, house through which repo activity is centrally cleared uh, for the street in the United States. And we are uh, building a DLT-based solution for that market, which will, again, use the same uh, core digital asset platform, different application on top of it, where the objective there is to apply uh, the technology to the uh, clearing and settlement of U.S. Treasury repo transactions, as opposed to cash equities in the case of, uh, of ASX. But basically, the concepts are the same. And what does the what does the platform allow you to do? Well, essentially, uh, you can think of it as a distributed, encrypted, straight through processing uh, platform, where customers of the infrastructure provider, so DTCC or ASX, as applicable are able to share a common or golden source transaction information with the uh, market operator, uh, are able to independently validate and verify their activity and that their activity as reflected on the central ledger uh, is uh, in fact uh, accurate. They're able to detect uh, fraud or uh, errors without uh, relying on uh, having to trust that market operator in order to establish uh, whether there, there are inaccuracies uh, or errors. And one of the uh, immediate byproducts of that is that a uh, participant in this uh, network um, has the opportunity to avoid having to undertake 
separate recording of the same uh, ledger information and all of the consequent reconciliation work that is required to ensure that the record kept by the customer and the record kept by the central market operator is uh, in sync and consistent. That is a huge area of cost and delay uh, and hence risk, uh, obviously, and is one of the reasons why settlement times are longer than optimal. So the benefits here are uh, reduction of operational costs, uh, uh, elimination of the need for reconciliation, uh, the opportunity to speed up uh, settlement times. Uh, and in the case of the DTCC use case, what that actually means is that transactions uh, which are transacted uh, in such a way that the trade date uh, is the same date as the on leg of the two-legged transaction that every repo is, are now or will be now using this technology able to be netted with the remainder of fixed uh, centrally cleared uh, activity, which until now has not been the case. So today, same day repo transactions or the on legs thereof are settled directly against uh, the Fed wire for both cash and securities flows, uh, rather than being centrally cleared uh, with the clearing entity. The net result of that is a huge inflation of balance sheet uh, consumed in such repo activity, which obviously comes at a very significant cost to the street. So the ability to speed up that uh, process and therefore enable netting of today's on leg with the off leg of yesterday's uh, same day uh, repo transactions offers enormous netting benefits uh, and thus uh, reduction of capital requirements. Which is phenomenal. Uh, you can see there's about four or five decent business cases in there, not just around reducing risk and cost and complexity, but also really having more capital available means you're more profitable almost immediately, which is just, I can see being execs would, would absolutely love the opportunity to do that. And somebody said to me a while ago, I think it was somebody who's a, a hardcore advocate of Bitcoin against banks rather than the two being collaborative, said to me that... Uh, a revolution in reconciliation isn't that exciting. And actually, from having worked in the banking industry, i got to say it's, it's pretty exciting to have a revolution in reconciliation when you consider the sheer difference it can make to an executive. Not just to an executive, but ultimately to the end customers of those executives. I think what we're this is that, you know, at the end of the day, the people that end up bearing the cost of the enormous inefficiencies in today's uh, market infrastructures are end investors. So that's, you know, you and your pension plan or your college uh, savings uh, or whatever else an investor uh, saves for, tens of basis points or percentage points a year are being wasted on sheer uh, costs that can simply be avoided completely. So although you and I as a man, uh, a woman on the street, uh, won't necessarily be directly interacting with this uh, wholesale infrastructure, uh, the benefits will absolutely flow through uh, to the end customer through uh, through cost reduction, not to mention you know reduced errors, uh, greater transparency to regulators, uh, better resiliency, all of these other things uh, too. I think there's something as well about when you go to look at your investment portfolio, what you're seeing is that uh, investment manager's best guess at what your portfolio is rather than a true statement of fact at any one point in time. So that transparency could, could be phenomenal. I guess uh, taking a slightly different tack, um, there's some wider questions I had about the blockchain space. 
I heard somebody say to me the other day that, that they're almost getting bored of blockchain now. It feels too real and too tangible. Um, I took that as a bit of a compliment that folks like ourselves are doing the right thing and getting the message across. When it's less exciting, it's getting closer to being real. Where do you think we are in the evolution? Are we, are we still early? Is this um, or is this kind of delivering on its promise now? I mean, I, I think we, we reached a tipping point sometime during the course of last year. Not sure exactly when. I'm not sure that it, it essentially matters. But, you know, if you if you think about what is necessary to generate the kind of momentum that you would need to see uh, happening now for a technology, any technology for that matter, to become mainstream over the next five to 10 years, meaning that it's the, it's the, uh, the choice of preference, you know, the, the more normal than not choice for new uh, installments of technology. Well, what would that momentum have to show today? The answer is you would need to see a significant amount of uh, ongoing investment uh, by uh, potential users of the technology. And we're seeing that. So uh, there really isn't a major financial institution or infrastructure provider that I'm aware of that isn't uh, actively exploring and investing in, in uh, this space. By investing, I mean uh, making investments in startup companies like my own, but also investing in uh, hiring uh, their own personnel, developing innovation labs, uh, conducting experiments, so on and so forth. You'd also expect to see collaborative work going on uh, around things like common protocols, standards, uh, common understandings, uh, convergence of uh, technological approach. Uh, I would point to examples, uh, including the consortia like uh, R3 in the banking space and others in insurance and so on, that are working on those areas and also the open source work uh, that's been done uh, through the Hyperledger Foundation, uh, through which actually Corda is, is being open sourced as well as uh, the Fabric uh, Project and others, all of which are oriented towards uh, the development of blockchain-like uh, solutions uh, for commercial enterprise. So a uh, tremendous amount of uh, communal activity uh, going on, which helps harden the code and, and uh, lead to convergence of uh, approach around uh, desirable features. You would also uh, want to see regulators being involved, and indeed we see just that, a huge amount of research, uh, education. In some cases, uh, regulators actually promoting sandboxes and other uh, innovation promotion uh, uh, concepts. And uh, you would finally uh, want to see some real-world commercial projects having been contracted. And again, that, uh, you know, I just uh, summarized for you uh, two of the, of the many that we're working on. Uh, and there are others, of course, that others are working on, uh, all of which uh, have production implementation in their sites, either uh, this year uh, or into next year. So I, I, th I really do think it, it, at this point, it's a, it's a question of, you know, when and not if, it's a question of, of how and not whether this technology will progress. Uh, there's a sufficient network effect that is that has been built up. And uh, I think the generic benefits of the technology have now become extremely well understood. The original um, skepticism that arose due to affiliation with Bitcoin and some very naive early positioning uh, of the concepts essentially as spelling the end of the road for all financial intermediaries you know, led to, uh, I think, a lack of understanding in the uh, early stages, which has now become very well, you know, overcome. And I think now this now is the time to be focusing more on risks. You know, what are the new incremental, uh, different or exacerbated risks that 
the implementation of this technology could bring. And I think we all understand the benefits, enormous efficiency, transparency, speed, risk reduction, capital elimination, all great. But there are also uh, the potential to introduce uh, new risks. Uh, not enough time is spent discussing that. That obviously is the area where regulators uh, will focus and certainly will have to focus uh, given their responsibility to supervise and oversee uh, systemic infrastructures. And we're ourselves spending a lot of time on, on that. And, and obviously the features of the platform that, that we're building have been very much driven by the need to comply with regulatory requirements, avoid uh, introducing new risks uh, that may be systemic or operational or credit risks or otherwise. Uh, and that's very much an area of focus. So all of that adds up to a non-trivial body of work, a non-trivial commitment of resources, uh, and therefore, I believe very much that it is well beyond the point at which uh, momentum is sufficient to guarantee uh, adoption. Yeah, it doesn't need the hype anymore because it's kind of inevitable at this point. It's, it's kind of a, a really, really good summary. And, and I guess uh, the risks point is is really key. One of the things uh, we see at 11FS when we're consulting in financial services, I'm seeing an increased demand for people to be able to articulate the risks. I'm seeing an increased demand from um, from all types of financial services clients for security designs on, let's face it, what are new code bases. Um, all of them are fairly new. None of them have been around that long um, and for people with experience in them. So I guess two takeaways, because we're, we're kind of coming to the end of our allotted time here, which is, um, you know, what excites you about this? What are you going to be sort of looking back in five years and going, yeah, that was really fun. Um, you know, what, what's the excitement? And two, you know, if, if I'm an executive and I'm kind of I've got something going on in my lab, but I don't know where I'm going to double down, what advice would you give? What, what actionable steps could an executive take? Well, what I'm what I'm excited about um, is is simply this is I think a generational opportunity, as in once in a generation opportunity, to fundamentally change the way that financial market infrastructure works, and that in a way that is uh, fundamentally for the uh, greater good of uh, everybody. So the participants themselves, the end investors, issuers, uh, and those tasked with regulating the industry. Financial markets matter. They are incredibly important and precious uh, engines of growth uh, for the real economy. In fact, a, a condition for innovation in the real economy is uh, innovation and health uh, of the financial economy. And obviously, uh, with the experience of the global financial crisis and the aftermath and the regulatory uh, changes that have ensued because of that, the financial system has been under something approaching a, an almost existential uh, threat because costs have been high and rising, revenues have been low and uh, you know relatively static, capital requirements have been exponentially increasing. You know that translates to an ROE dynamic that is highly troublesome because financial firms are essentially unable to generate a return on equity that exceeds their long-run cost of capital. When that's the case, something has to happen. <laughs> it's, it's an existential situation. Um, this technology has the uh, promise of uh, really being able to provide answers to meaningful answers to uh, that problem. It won't necessarily be a sufficient uh, solution to solve all of those problems, but it's a very material uh, step in the right direction in terms of reducing both uh, capital requirements and, uh, and cost. And the estimates, estimates now uh, widespread estimates indicating uh, the, the costs that uh, could be in play here uh, of the orders of magnitude of hundreds of billions of dollars per annum uh, of ongoing expense, so not non-trivial uh, impact. You know, to be involved in uh, making something like that happen 
using a technology which was unheard of three or four years ago, at least by this market segment, is incredibly exciting. And it, and it feels great because it's not, it's not just about something that's intellectually stimulating uh, and it's fast moving. It's also something that has a social uh, benefit uh, at the end of the day that, that one can be proud of uh, having promoted. So that's what excites me. And in terms of the advice to executives who are, uh, are thinking about uh, this space, I, I guess my advice would be that if you look back to uh, the early days of the 1990s and the advent of the internet itself, we were all aware that something was happening, but nobody yet fully understood the uh, consequences uh, of what would change uh, and who would be impacted. And if you look that back now with the benefit of hindsight, obviously the internet changed absolutely everything for absolutely everyone. And there were some firms that came into existence because of it, others that were wiped off the face of the planet because of it. And then the vast majority of businesses, uh, including in financial services, had to adopt and adapt uh, and incorporated uh, those tools into the way that they uh, manage their business, generally doing that in a way that enables them to stay competitive in, in their competitive markets. This is a trend that is as big as that, uh, and therefore it, it is unwise to ignore it. Uh, I don't think it uh, necessarily, uh, at least uh, not in the very near term, uh, it, it spells the impending doom of uh, financial intermediation as a business model. It certainly, however, introduces new ways in which uh, financial intermediaries will compete with each other. And those that uh, embrace and invest in the technology and use it to provide a uh, more resilient, lower cost, more efficient, more transparent service uh, to their customers will be advantaged relative to those that do not. That's a really, really great point to finish on. Blythe Masters, thank you very much for joining us on FinTech Insider. My pleasure.